engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. It is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Uh, the GOP tax bill is out. Elon Musk, hardest hit. They're getting rid of the $7,500 credit for the purchase of electric vehicles, and they want to uh, overhaul other energy-related provisions in the tax code. Uh, and there are a lot of people not happy about this. The NFIB, the National Federation of Small of Independent Businesses, has come out uh, and said that the GOP is ignoring small businesses. And, you know, that that's my jumping off point for this. Listen, I think that this is a pretty good tax plan. It does not do everything that I like. It really doesn't. Um, I don't like a number of provisions. Is it a step in the right direction? Yes. I'm kind of appalled that Republicans couldn't do more than what they apparently are going to do. Um, we should all be disappointed in that, by the way. Uh, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Is it a good step in the right direction? Yes. Should a Republican party that controls both houses of Congress and the White House be able to do more? Yes, they should. But... It is still a step in the right direction. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to see a bunch of conservatives try to scuttle this plan. Uh, in fact, there are more liberals, it seems, coming out trying to scuttle the plan. Liberals within the Republican Party trying to scuttle it. I, I think this is a, a worthwhile plan worth considering, but it is definitely not perfect. And one of the recurring themes that I have noted with the Republican Party, whether it's in Georgia or Washington, the Republican Party seems to have forgotten about the small business owner. They are much more focused on the Fortune 500. The majority of Americans working today do not work for the Fortune 500. They don't even work for the S&P 500. They work for small businesses. Many of them are privately held companies. Most of them are privately held companies. A lot of them aren't even incorporated. They're sole proprietor businesses. And Congress, both parties, uh, but the GOP being supposedly the party business, supposedly the party of, of the employer, supposedly the party of innovation and entrepreneurs, the GOP seems to have forgotten about them in Georgia and in Washington and around the nation. There are very few states these days that seem to be small business friendly. Texas is one of them. Tennessee is one of them. South Carolina is one of them. But there aren't a lot of them that are small business oriented. They are all very focused on big businesses. And I just, I think our priorities are screwed up. This is also, you know, for example, the Republican leadership obsession with Common Core, something that the Republican base opposes, and there are a good number of elected officials who campaigned in opposition to it only to leave it be. The reality is that... Common Core is something structured by Fortune 500 companies and designed for the express purpose of your child being a good little worker bee for the Fortune 500. 
They don't want your kid competing with them. They don't want to teach your kid entrepreneurship. They don't want to teach your kid creativity in ways that they may spark an idea that make them competitive. They just want little worker bees. And so GOP leaders have thrown their, their hat in behind Common Core. And, of course, there are certain companies that profit from the curriculum. There are certain companies that profit from the plans. There are certain companies that profit from the, the steps you take along the Common Core path. And they're okay with that because they may be monopolies in a sense, uh, but they're privately held corporations, so they're fine with that. But what about the small businesses? What about the coffee shop on the square in Covington or Marietta? What about the downtown clothing shop? What about the, the outdoors company? The outfitter? What about the, the mid-sized company, the, the payroll processor, the, the, the accountant shop? You know, they're going to, they've complicated the tax code and yet they're going to not, no longer allow you to deduct the cost of hiring an accountant to figure out your taxes for you. Uh, that's a sore spot. I just think that the the GOP has really mixed up its priorities and they've forgotten who their base is. They have forgotten. Um, and, you know, essentially what the GOP is doing these days is they're focusing on donors. Look in Georgia, if you would. Look at Georgia. You've got a lot of small businesses in Georgia a good number of whom are mom-and-pop shops, and they are regular churchgoers. They are conservatives. They are social conservatives. And you've got the left increasingly in this country coming for people like that, targeting intentionally people like that. And it would be great if you pass some sort of religious liberty legislation in Georgia to protect these businesses that are being increasingly targeted. I, I know this guy, he wrote a book called You Will Be Made to Care. And it documents the existing current persecution of Christians in this country. Many of whom are willfully, knowingly targeted by gay rights activists to be put out of business. It's not speculation. There is a whole lot of credible evidence that a lot of these small businesses that are being targeted, the bakers and the floors and whatnot, are being intentionally targeted. So you would think with a Republican base, a public, you know, there's polling out today, there's national polling that 62% of, of voters, of registered voters, believe that a person should not be forced to provide goods and services to a same-sex uh, wedding ceremony. You would think with that broad level of national support, and it's even higher in Georgia, that the GOP would handle and pass some religious liberty protections given what's coming nationwide, given the willful intentional targeting nationwide. But they won't because the Fortune 500 doesn't want them to. In the same way you would think that nationally Republicans in Washington would structure a tax plan that, yes, it does court the, cut the corporate tax rate to 20%, and that's a great idea because we are increasingly not competitive with other countries out there. We are increasingly not competitive in any way, shape, or form. We need a lower tax rate. But you would think that the Republicans would force in some religious liberty protections 
nationally. And you would think that they would structure some of these tax reform proposals and deductions to favor small businesses, not the Fortune 500. But they're not doing that. They, they have forgotten who their voters are, and they're only looking at who their donors are, their top donors are. And the Fortune 500 is who they're catering to. And they think that the, the health and wealth of the nation depends on the Fortune 500 and not on the small and medium-sized businesses in this country that employ most of the people. So again, this is a good Republican tax plan. It's, it's not a great one. I shouldn't even say it's good. It's not bad. Put it to you this way. It doesn't, it, it's not bad. Does it suck? Yes. Uh, could it be suckier? Yes. Is it worth passing? Yes. It's a step in the right direction, but it's only an incremental baby step in the right direction. It is not a giant leap, and it is not a comprehensive tax reform. It's not the comprehensive tax reform that Republicans have long promised if they ever got back Congress. What it is is a package that caters to a bunch of large corporations, and then it adds on other things to ensure it can pass with enough votes. That's not really leadership. That's doing the bare minimum to get something done. And we should all be disappointed by that. Republicans have time and time again told us, if you give us the majorities, we'll do these grand things. They have gotten the majorities that they have long craved. They have gotten the majorities they long promised they would do something with. They have gotten the majorities that you all decided to give them. And they're doing really nothing with it. Which, it doesn't hurt President Trump. It hurts the Republicans in Congress. And if I'm really honest about it, it deserves to hurt the Republicans in Congress. Because in the absence of leadership from the president, and he's not really providing a lot, Congress does have leadership. And those leaders are more interested in their reelection than they are doing bold things. And I actually think that the failure to do bold things is what's going to cost them Congress next year. More Republicans are retiring. That should be a terrible sign for the GOP, and I think privately they know it. It's 26 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800 WSB Talk. Don't forget, you can sign up for the show notes and get the podcast texting show to 444-999. Let's go back to the phones. Derek in Alpharetta, you are up first. Welcome. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, I, I've heard you say this, and I've heard other people say it too, and I just don't know why we are wringing our hands about having somebody like Jeff Flake retire. I, I would I would love to see. I mean, uh, I'm not. my representatives, Rob, Rob Woodall, I, good riddance. Yeah. I mean, these, these people are not Republicans. Why are we worried about losing these people? I'm I, not. You know, hit. Do not let your, you know, the door hit you in the butt on the way out. Yeah, listen, I, I, I'm with you on, on Flake. I, I have written for years now on Flake. and In fact, one of my, my, my prideful claims to fame this year is I wrote a piece about why conservatives shouldn't support Flake, and it went around to some of the top RNC donors. Uh, they passed it around, and many of them withheld money from him um, because the guy, like so many Republicans, continually makes promises of what he's going to do, and then he gets to Washington and he breaks those promises. Jeff Flake ran for the Congress, ran for the Senate, rather, 
on his Club for Growth rating. Jeff Flake had a 100% rating in the Club for Growth the entire time he was in the United States House of Representatives. Now that he's in the Senate, his Club for Growth rating is one of the worst among the Republicans. Now, I am not saying, as some people claim I'm saying, that, oh, he's gotten bad on a scorecard. That means we should ditch him. No, I'm saying that the scorecard is unchanged. Jeff Flake is changed. Jeff Flake ran for the Senate as I'm a 100% club for growther, and now he's a 50%er. Jeff Flake changed. He got to the Senate, and he got too clever by half. The things Jeff Flake opposed in the House, he's supporting in the Senate. The things that he supported in the House, he's opposed in the Senate. Now, as for others, you mentioned Woodall as well, Derek. You know, I think that the House Freedom Caucus gets a very bad rap. And I have a lot of friends who dislike the House Freedom Caucus, and they, they give me a hard time all the time for supporting guys like Jim Jordan and, and Mark Meadows and others. I think that Congress needs to be cutting things, and they need to not be passing new laws but repealing old laws. I think Congress needs to be saying no to much more. And frankly, I, I think we ought to have a Congress that meets like the Texas General Assembly every other year for 180 days in the end. There are plenty of laws out there. We don't need any more. And we spend too much money. And we don't have enough money. So I think we got to do something. We've got to repeal things. And we got to balance the budget. If we don't, we're going to be in, well, we're going to be in a world of hurt out there. A huge, huge world of hurt. And I just, something's got to change. But I'm with you on Flake. It's 40 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is WSB. You can also go to theresurgent.com whenever you like. Now, Hillary Clinton, if you ever wanted to know for certain that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's days as a political power couple have come to an end, all you needed to do was pay attention to what happened today. Donna Brazil. The former interim chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee is, is releasing a new book this week. Uh, random fun fact, her editor is my editor, um, Paul, who he edited Before You Wake. He's edited Donna's book, uh, which will be out. I cannot wait to read it because I know some of the stories in it, and one of the stories is just the funniest thing you will ever hear in politics. Uh, about her encounter with Robbie Mook, uh, who is Hillary's campaign manager. But she has a, a uh, an excerpt of her book out of the Politico today, in which she essentially says that Hillary Clinton had gamed the system uh, of the primaries through financial control of the DNC to ensure she became the nominee. Elizabeth Warren this evening was on with Jake Tapper on CNN and said she believes that the um, Democratic nomination process was rigged. Uh, Tapper, very, very quickly, Senator, do you agree with the notion that the primary process was rigged? Warren, yes. 
Yes, she did. Pretty big deal for you. Um, now, what happened was Hillary Clinton had a joint fundraising agreement with the Democratic National Committee. Barack Obama had left it broke, didn't see any need to sustain it. And so they were several million dollars and tens of millions of dollars in debt. And Hillary Clinton promised she would raise enough money to pay off the debt, but she would have all the hiring decisions. And they entered this agreement in 2015, well before she got the nomination. Donna Brazil came in after the nomination process and discovered all this stuff and writes about having to call Bernie Sanders and tell him, yeah, in fact, the, the nomination process was rigged, uh, stacked against you. Now you got to go out and support the nominee because uh, we got to stop Trump and Hillary's underperforming in certain areas. I have some insight on this, just some, because I've heard some accusations made today uh, that, oh, isn't it convenient Donna Brazil writing a book now claiming that she knew Hillary Clinton was going to lose. She doesn't say that. She just says she's underperforming in certain areas, don't believe the polls, to Bernie Sanders. Uh, but people are saying, oh, this is revisionist history, Donna Brazil trying to cover for leaking the email to Hillary Clinton, and on and on and on. I, you people stop complaining about them filming the Avengers downtown. I realize your traffic is screwed up right now, but it is for a cause greater than yourself. It is for the Avengers. People, it is for the Avengers, the Infinity War series. Do you understand me? I know it sucks for you, but right now you're stuck and have to listen to me. So it's good for me, but it's good for all of us because we'll get an awesome movie out of it. So calm down. If you are a regular listener to this program, you will have at some point probably heard me say that Donna Brazil is one of my favorite people on planet Earth. Now, I realize many of you are like I used to be. Uh, Donna Brazil growing up was the enemy. She worked for Bill Clinton. She was Al Gore's campaign manager. She worked at the, the DNC. She was the enemy. And then I went and worked for CNN for three years. And Donna Brazil worked for CNN as well and is one of the nicest, kindest, friendliest people I've ever met in politics. Uh, in life, she is. Uh, she has uh, spent nights on Bourbon Street in New Orleans collecting beads and doubloons for my kids at Mardi Gras. Uh, we are on each other's prayer list. We talk about cooking. We don't. We disagree on politics. We find other things to talk about. Uh, and she is, I, I wish you all could know her because she is such a wonderful person. Uh, I genuinely adore her. And when all of this business was going on, uh, in 2016, uh, with all the people, the people showing up at our house, Christy's cancer, she's checking on us regularly, um, checking up on Christy's health, checking up on my health. Uh, she's got all these other things to be worried about, and yet she's worried about Christy and me. And I'm, of course, worried about her because she's in a situation of Debbie Wasserman Schultz's creation, and that's no place to be. And I, I am aware of the fact that um, this, this is not a revisionist history thing. She and I have this conversation at the time um, that she was not as dismissive. I mean, she thought there was a greater chance of Donald Trump winning than I did. And she was out in the field going to certain states and, and detecting the, the distinct lack of enthusiasm for Hillary in these places. Uh, so this is not revisionism. Uh, this is real-time um, 
back in 2016 conversations and seeing these people attack her they said oh yeah you think donna brazil actually knew this stuff you you think she knew hillary clinton was in danger we were having conversations about this at the time about the lack of enthusiasm for clinton the fact that the democrats didn't seem to get it um i did not know about the finances of the dnc she she was the chairwoman it would have violated the confidentiality of the dnc for her to tell me that stuff but i knew there were problems and i knew there were problems because debbie wasserman schultz was the campaign chair of the dnc and she's an incompetent moron and so in walks brazil and realizes that the hillary campaign has basically gamed the system stacked the dnc with a bunch of cronies that donna systematically decided to start firing over the objections of the clinton campaign and he, they were clueless. The Democrats were. They, the Clinton campaign was absolutely clueless about what was happening. They were so convinced of the inevitability of Hillary Clinton, they never stopped to think that maybe she could be beaten, even by Trump. That's why so many Democrats cling to the idea that Russia stole the election. There, are, I don't know a single Democrat who knows what was going on behind the scenes with Hillary Clinton and the DNC, who legitimately believes the Russians stole the election. They all acknowledge Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate and Robbie Mook was a terrible campaign manager, and together they ran a train wreck. You can tell the days of the Clintons, though, are done in politics because I don't know that this book would be written if Hillary Clinton were president um, because she would still be in power. That it could be written means the Clinton days are done. No. Speaking of the Democratic National Committee, uh, Tom Perez now is the DNC chair, and he's gone far left. He's the guy who said uh, pro-lifers aren't welcome in that party. You know, it, it really is striking that uh, the Republican Party is a much more intellectually diverse party than the Democratic Party. Within the Republican Party, uh, not only is there diversity uh, of skin color, and remember, um, the Republican Party has many more elected statewide Hispanic uh, officials than the Democrats do, but in the Republican Party, you can be for abortion rights and for gay marriage, but you can't be uh, for life and traditional marriage in the Democratic Party. In the Republican Party, it's okay if you disagree on conservative orthodoxy on those topics. It is okay if you uh, believe that gay marriage is okay. You can still get elected in the Republican Party. You can even make it through the primary in certain parts of the Republican Party. But with the Democrats, you can't. Not anymore. The Democratic Party is extremely hostile to traditional values now. Uh, their diversity is superficially skin deep. And the GOP, at least, you have to encounter other ideas. When we come back, some of those ideas on taxes. After the hour, I am Eric Erickson. This is WSB, the phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Welcome to the program. Nikki Haley 
we got to deviate from what I was going to talk about and go to the United Nations where Nikki Haley has spoken to the General Assembly. Every year they do a resolution calling on the United States to give up the embargo against Cuba. Last year, for the first time in 25 years, last year, Samantha Power, the U.N. ambassador, abstained on the resolution. The Obama administration waited until they were leaving office to do this. It was one of the things that really helped Donald Trump in Florida, by the way, because of the Cuban population there. Well, Nikki Haley, a short time ago, speaking to the General Assembly, listened to this takedown of the Obama administration. One year ago, the United States abstained when voting on the same resolution. The reason given was that the continuation of the embargo was not isolating Cuba, but was in fact isolating the United States. It is true that we had been left nearly alone in opposition to this annual resolution. No doubt there will be some here who do not understand how we can take such opposite positions, separately by, separated by just 12 months. They will wonder how we could passively accept this resolution last year and energetically oppose it this year. To those who are confused as to where the United States stands, let me be clear. As is their right under our Constitution, the American people have spoken. They have chosen a new president, and he has chosen a new ambassador to the United Nations. As long as the Cuban people continue to be deprived of their human rights and fundamental freedoms, as long as the proceeds from trade with Cuba go to prop up the dictatorial regime responsible for denying those rights, the United States does not fear isolation in this chamber or anywhere else. Our principles are not up for a vote. They are enshrined in our Constitution. They also happen to be enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations. Boom. That's Nikki Haley speaking just a short time ago to the United Nations General Assembly about the U.S.'s opposition to a resolution. As she goes on to say in this speech that, oh, by the way, there ain't a thing you people can do about it. We're not getting rid of the, the embargo. <laughs> I mean, it was so funny that, that we do this every year, she says, and 26 of 25 years we vote no, and it doesn't matter if it passes or doesn't. You can't change the fact that we have this embargo. And it looks like the Trump administration is going to scale back the steps that the Obama administration took. She goes on to make that point that uh, the Obama administration took the point, it took the steps to to engage with Cuba on the idea that maybe this would improve the situation of the average person in Cuba. But in fact, the Cuban regime is making sure that none of the money helps the Cuban people. It all goes to the government and to the the communist dictatorship. So we'll probably be scaling back on the Cuba engagement, but it's nice to have a UN ambassador now who actually likes the United States. I want to move on from the United Nations and get into the a survey that has come out. Uh, Cato, the libertarian think tank, has put out the survey. <clears throat> it's their Institute uh, 2017 Free Speech and Tolerance Survey. 71% of Americans surveyed say political correctness silences discussions society needs to have. 
58% of Americans believe the political climate today prevents them from saying things they believe. Democrats are unique. A slim majority, 53%, don't feel the need to self-censor. Strong majorities of Republicans, 73%, and independents, 58%, say they keep some political beliefs to themselves. Why is it that a majority of Democrats say they don't feel the need to self-censor, but Republicans and independents do? I'll tell you why. It's an easy answer. It's because Democrats are the ones who silence everyone else. That's why. The left in this country, Democrats of, are a part of the left. They have isolated themselves mostly in urban enclaves where it is far less likely that they will engage with a conservative than it is for a conservative to engage with liberal. Th think about it right now. Most of you who are listening to this program, where are you? You're stuck in traffic, aren't you? Not all of you. We got enough data to show that a lot of you are listening at home or in the office. But the bulk of you, you're in your car right now. And where are you headed? You are headed home. And where is home? More likely than not outside an urban enclave. You're going to the exurbs. You're going to the, the, the more rural suburbs. You're going to places that have yards. You're going to Noonan. You're going to Carrollton. You're going to Woodstock. Uh, you're going to Alpharetta and parts north. You're going up to Ball Ground and Canton. You're headed over to Flowery Branch. You're, you're going away from the city to places where you can get a little more house. They got better schools. And when you, in the morning, get up, where are you headed? You head into the city. There is a group of people who stay in the city. They don't leave. They don't commute. In fact, they look down on you for commuting. Those people are called liberals. But they don't like to be called liberals anymore because liberalism, people have realized what it is and they don't like it, so they call themselves progressivism or progressives. Uh, progressivism changed its name to liberalism. Liberalism's gone back to progressivism. It's the same thing. Nobody likes it. It just takes a while for people to catch on when the name changes, which is why they changed the name. The liberals stay in the city in urban enclaves where they don't have to associate with you people. You have to come into the city and acknowledge them and deal with them on a daily basis. They never leave and go out to your area. So, so everybody on their friends, when they hang out on the weekend, while you're off barbecuing and at the golf course or with the kids in church, they don't go to church. They're in their, their secular places watching Thocker and seeing other people who are doing the same, and uh, none of them believe in God, none of them have kids, and none of them like you. They think you're evil. And they feel okay expressing themselves because they never have to encounter you, and they don't have to worry about offending you because they're deeply contemptuous of you. That is the American left these days. And they don't see it. They get mad at people like me for pointing it out, but it is true. And more and more surveys, objective surveys, Pew Research and others are showing this, that the closing of the American mind is only happening in liberal communities. And why is it only happening in liberal communities? Because they only see each other. You're far more likely to be a conservative out in Woodstock and encounter a liberal then you are to be a liberal in Midtown and encounter a conservative. In fact, these same studies show that a liberal who lives in Woodstock is more tolerant of his or her conservative neighbors 
than a liberal who lives in Midtown because they're encountering each other on a non-political playing field where they find common ground on other things and they realize that they can disagree. But when you're in a liberal enclave like New York or Washington, San Francisco, Los Angeles, downtown Atlanta, Miami, Chicago, you name it, well, you never encounter people who think differently from you. They look differently from you. So you value the, the diversity of skin color, but you don't value the diversity of ideas. It becomes a whole lot easier to consider these people evil and that their ideas need to be shut down and they need to be shut up. That is why it is far more likely that a liberal will answer, no, we don't feel compelled to, to hide our political views. It's because they don't encounter anyone for whom they fear sharing their views. Meanwhile, if you're a conservative or an independent, you can be driven out of your job by a bunch of left-wing activists for daring to confront the zeitgeist. And you don't want to do that. So you be quiet. You self-censor. And it builds up resentment. And yes, I'll say it. This is how we got Trump. It's 27 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750. 1-800-WSB-TALK. Hang on a second. I'm trolling the New York Times. Um, here we go. Yes. Okay. Tweeted. Um, the New York Times is running a story that the their tweet is Allah Akbar has somehow become inextricably intertwined with terrorism. Its real meaning is far more innocent. And then the headline, Alo Akbar, an everyday phrase tarnished by attacks. It's an expression of thanks to God in the Muslim world, but it's embraced by terrorists has given it a dark cast for many in the West. I can play this game. The swastika has somehow become inextricably intertwined with Nazism. Its real meaning is far more innocent. The swastika, an everyday symbol tarnished by Nazis. It's a symbol of good luck throughout Eastern and some Western cultures, but its embrace by Nazis has given it a dark cast for many in the West. <gasps> you dare say, I, and look, we can do this game all night, New York Times. This, this trying to downplay it is just a bunch of hooey. When someone steps out of a car with a machine gun and yells, Allahu Akbar, you know he's probably not bringing you a meal. He's probably there to kill you. I mean, if the New York Times is so upset about this, maybe instead of uh, doing guilt nonsense with, oh, the Muslim backlash, maybe they should tell Islam to clean up its house. It is 39 after the hour. You know, the New York Times has suggested its reporters need to stay off Twitter. And if they decide that they can't stay off Twitter, they need to not express political opinions. And what this really is, is the New York Times acknowledging that it's got a bunch of liberals who write for it as objective reporters. And... 
they don't like it because it allows people like me, the ammunition, to point out that these people are liberals. They have liberal worldview. They hold conservatives in contempt. Uh, and on and on it goes. Well, it's not just them. And more and more, the American people get it. They understand the press. I don't believe that the American press is an enemy of the people, as a growing number of Republicans do, solely because President Trump has told them to think that way. Um, but I do think uh, that there are a lot of reporters who are deeply hostile to people who are not liberals. And they are deeply hostile to the Trump administration. They are deeply hostile to the idea of Trump in the White House. And they hate people who work for Donald Trump, and they want to undermine Donald Trump, and they want to undermine those who work for him. And a uh, case in point is The Hill, which is one of the worst offenders of taking people out of context and seeing things go viral on Twitter by making salacious points that are lies, complete distortions of the story. The Hill, for example, and the reporter, Timothy Kama, who writes for The Hill, uh, are running a story that says uh, Rick Perry has suggested fossil fuels can prevent sexual assault. That's his story, and he's sticking to it. Tim Carney over at the Washington Examiner makes a very good point that uh, Perry uh, maybe could have articulated his point a little better, but his point was willfully obfuscated by this reporter. There is a study, for example, from Chicago that suggests outages of streetlights cause crimes. Now, here's the thing, electrification. It's part of economic development in Africa. Fossil fuels provide more reliable electricity than other sorts of energy. If fossil fuels provide more reliable sources of energy and electrification is an important part of economic development and economic development has been shown to um, reduce women who are indentured for sexual situations and sexual assault, well then yes, fossil fuel can prevent sexual assault. The point Rick Perry was getting at is that reliable lighting and energy, it can reduce crime. And because it can reduce crime, it can reduce crimes such as sexual assaults and others. Uh, you have street lights out there. You're not going to see women walking down the street getting dragged into dark alleys and raped. Lighting in India has a wider pavement and better lighting has reduced sexual violence in New Delhi. Oxfam, which is a left-wing nonprofit, has written about energy needs in sub-Saharan Africa, and they note that access to modern fuels is expected to help prevent uh, cuts, falls, bites, and episodes of sexual harassment and assault that women and girls might otherwise sustain while collecting fuel wood. So all of these things bear out the point Rick Perry was making, but the liberal reporter at the Hill just wants to reduce it to, uh, Rick Perry's an idiot. He says fossil fuels can prevent sexual assault, which wasn't what he said. Is it any wonder people don't trust the media? Is it any wonder that people are more and more leaving mainstream news outlets behind? They should. They don't deserve the credibility given this sort of stuff. By the way, I got to tell you guys, uh, one of the people I, I I just, I like him tremendously. He's a good guy. He's Joe Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs. Uh, I've gotten to be friends with him, ending spending. His uh, political action group has been a sponsor of the resurgent on several occasions. He's just a good guy. And I got to tell you, liberals are livid with him today. 
because he owned some new sites in New York. One was called DNA Info. Another was called Gothamist, and they had other subsites, and they were hyperlocal news sites. And by hyperlocal news, I mean that they had news about your neighborhood. Like, for example, um, you, you live in, in a fancy gated community in, in uh, north of the city. That they, it was basically a newspaper for that gated community. Um, it was hyper local in that you could get news just for Brooklyn. It was mostly focused on New York. You could get news just for Brooklyn, just for Queens, just for uh, the Williamsburg area of Brooklyn, just for the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And uh, the sites had huge traffic, but the writers were overwhelmingly liberal. And they voted to unionize. He worked with them and tried to get them not to unionize, but they unionized. And and it was obvious what was going to happen with unionization. They were just going to start demanding more money. The sites had to be very, very nimble. They had to run on, on very slim margins. And so he shut everything down, deleted their accounts, shut everything down. Now, you know, it's against the law for an employer to tell employees who are thinking of unionizing that if they do so, he will shut it down. It's considered a threat to dissuade unionization. You're not allowed to do that. So he didn't. He let them, let them vote. They voted to unionize. They are now all unemployed. They're all unemployed members of the union. Uh, it's his company. He pays for it. He should have been able to run it the way he wanted to run it. They did not have to work there. Instead, they decided to unionize. And he made the decision as the owner, they are not the owners, he is, to shut it down. So now you've got angry reporters out there today. Uh, Alexander Kaufman, who is a climate change reporter for the Huffington Post, um, he says he wants to tax billionaires like Joe Ricketts and then publicly fund local journalism. Do you really want Donald Trump in charge of your journalism, Alexander Kaufman? Do you really want that? You want the government to run your, I mean, uh, why don't you go work for, there are some certain PR that you go work for Voice of America, go work for NPR, see how you like it in the age of Trump. But I tell you what, uh, it is really, really funny to see reporters demand government money for reporting uh, because they don't like that someone didn't want his business unionized. They didn't have to work there. They could have quit. Instead, they put themselves out of work, and it is nice to see Joe Ricketts stand up for himself. It is nice to see an employer say, you know what? I own this joint. I run it the way I want to run it, and you're not going to tell me how to run it and shut it down. I like that. More employers should do that. It is 55 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. I need to congratulate Andrew. I do. It was a long night and the Astros beat the Dodgers. You know, it, it is fitting. Listen, in a, in an age of cultural decline, it is fitting that a garbage team is now sits on top of the, the, the um, dumpster fire that is American culture. It's like the Kardashians have won an Oscar or something. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I got people mad at me last night for saying that. Listen, I grew up and I just, I did not like the, the Astros. I like the Dodgers, but I loved the Cubs. 
and neither of those two teams has made it. The Astros, the team that just a couple of years ago I think won no games, uh, is, is suddenly on top of the world. It, it really is amazing that it what was it 2014 uh, Sports Illustrated cover uh, was on the 2017 World Series winners would be the Astros. They they called it um, just using a a very great methodology to try to find good players. Why, why can't the Braves do that? And I, I can talk trash about the Astros just because I'm in Atlanta and we have the Braves, who one time were worth something. I never did make it to SunTrust Field. This, I'm, I'm going to have to go. I still need to go to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and, and just see the roof. I, but, I mean, the Astros, they, they won the World Series. Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it's a sign of the apocalypse. Maybe Jesus is right around the corner. That could possibly be. But uh, all my Texas friends... Congratulations to you, begrudgingly, that your beloved Astros, for reasons I can't fathom uh, why you like them, they're now the World Series winners. Congratulations, I guess.